the glory forever. Amen. Well, let's join together now as God's covenant people. We will take our copy of God's word. And we'll turn together to our passage for this morning and for our week ahead. We find that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. This morning we're going to focus on verse 6, but we will read it all in context. So we'll begin verse 2 through verse 8. So as you see in your bulletin, it said at some points during the service, today is our covenant renewal service. It's something we've been doing uh, since 2014-2015. So it's good along the way that we, we remind ourselves of why we have something like this. We just don't want something to be tradition for tradition's sake. We want to know why. And, and that why, we want, to, we, want to answer, we want to answer the what. What is a covenant renewal service that helps us understand the why we have this? Well, for those of us here who have a, Beth, a Methodist background, you may already be familiar with what a covenant renewal service is. Uh, John Wesley, who was the, the founder of the Methodist Church, began to teach this idea of covenant renewal uh, to the Methodist movement back in 1753. He did so with a view to encourage Christians towards spiritual discipline and consistency of life. And so it began on a small scale just a few years later. Uh, he introduced it more formally to be a special service built into the church calendar. So pretty much since its inception, the Methodist Church has had in its church calendar the covenant renewal service. So over the years, other churches and other denominations have seen a place for it. It's often on the first Sunday of the new year, with a view to encouraging deeper devotion to God, such as we do here. Now, Wesley came about this through a, a Puritan, through a Puritan book that had the typical Puritan title, A Vindication of Godliness and the Greater Strictness and Spirituality of It. Isn't that, isn't that fetching? If you saw that at Barnes & Noble, you go, oh, I want to read that. Uh, one of those long, wordy titles the Puritans were, were, were famous for. But the book had a goal, and the goal was to encourage professing Christians towards a kind of devotion to Christ that was more than a mere outward profession of faith. The author was concerned that there were too many in the church who were content with just saying, confessing they're Christians, but not living out that confession. The author believed in, in God's sovereignty and salvation, but he did not see that as taking away from a Christian's duty before God to live out their new life in Christ. This is based in part on Philippians chapter 2, where, where the, the Apostle Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works within you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So the idea here is that it's not just enough that we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, but we live as if Jesus Christ is Lord. So with that idea that churches have included this service, and this service often includes the renewal vows, which we'll do here, uh, here in a moment, it's a simple exercise of us publicly articulating a fresh devotion to God. And it has its own way of re refocusing and reinforcing our desire to truly live as the people of God, both individually and together as the church. So that's the what and the why of this service. And so to guide us into this morning, we're going to focus on 1 Timothy 6, 6, but we're going to read the passage around it so we can keep all this in its proper context. So let me pray for us as we come now before God's word. Well, it's already been enough said. <laughs> enough words have been shared. But we need your blessing. 
as we come now before your word. This is your blessed word. And we pray, Lord, in this occasion that we've set our goal for covenant renewal, that you'll help us see that in this passage. That we have a renewal of, of zeal, and passion, and desire for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us in that way, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. And we'll begin at the end of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we set aside this time this morning, and, and hopefully not just this morning, but throughout this week, uh, to think about covenants and covenant theology. And that's a vast subject. Uh, many, many books, a lot of words have been written on, on covenants, uh, uh, the, 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 how the covenants work, covenant theology. But as we, as we take this time this morning, I want us to not so much drink out of a fire hydrant, but I want us to, to focus in on a particular aspect we find in biblical covenants, and that is these covenants are, in this very particular sense, goal-oriented. Now, we live underneath the covenant of grace. And this is a covenant God made with his people. It's a covenant he made that he will save sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is a covenant made back in the Old Testament. It's summarized, we find, by the prophet Isaiah, or by the prophet Jeremiah, when he says these words, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, I want to just take a moment to think about the goal orientation of this covenant. That God had this goal. He made this covenant of grace with the purpose and goal of what? To bring a people to him so he may be their God. And being their God and they being his people have all the blessings that attend with it. The purpose and goal that he would be our God. And in that relationship, we would be his people. That's the goal of the covenant of grace. Beginning in Genesis 3.15 and continuing onward, that has always been the goal of the covenant of grace. And when we get to the New Testament, we find that that goal has been accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. That we are saved from our sins through faith alone in Christ alone. That Jesus in his incarnation as our Messiah as to Christ, as the Savior of people, has done everything necessary to bring us salvation. So that God will save us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God had a goal and he accomplished it. That is part of the covenant of grace. God 
has saved his people. He has provided salvation for sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. His goal has been accomplished. But there's another part to it. God made a covenant with us. And when God calls you and me into that covenant through faith, and only God can do that because God is the one who made the covenant. He has the stipulations of covenant. But when he calls us into his covenant with him, through faith alone and Christ alone, and the Holy Spirit comes, takes our spiritual heart of stone and gives us a spiritual heart of flesh. And in that spiritual heart of flesh is, is already ingrained the DNA covenant goals for us to attend to. Mainly that we will grow to be more and more like Jesus. That is the goal of the Christian life. That is the goal of us being in covenant with God. For us to grow, continually grow, to be more like Jesus. We think of Jesus teaching in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's think about that in sort of covenantal terms. What Jesus says is, I have made a covenant with you. I have come to save you through faith alone and me alone. And because of that, you will grow to be more like me by keeping my commandments. So that's the goal of the Christian life. That's, the, that's our side of the covenant of grace that God makes with us, is that we will grow to be more like Jesus. And when we understand this, we understand the covenant of grace in that way of God making the covenant and our responsibility to covenant, this will then help us answer the question that has nagged Christians at some point in their Christian lives, maybe briefly, but maybe more so, but that question is, am I really a Christian? How can I really and truly know I am saved? What assurance do I have that I am in this covenant with God? And the answer is in the stipulations of the covenant. Are you growing to be more like Jesus? Are you dying more and more to your sin and living more and more to Jesus and his glory? Your answer to that will lead then to the answer of your salvation. Because when God makes a covenant with a person, this covenant of grace calls them into that covenant, then there is no option but for that person to be changed. They're given a, a new heart. They're given a directive in, in life. They're given the means of grace. They're given the church. They're given this growing love for Jesus, a love that is shown in faithful obedience. That is the evidence of true faith. That doesn't mean perfection. And doesn't mean our, our, our growth is always going to be a steady incline. If there's anything you know about the Christian faith, it is a roller coaster. We have our highs and we have our lows. We have our peaks, we have our valleys. But there's always that steady growth towards Jesus. And this is what the Bible refers to as growing in godliness. That our whole person has been made new in the image of God. And we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. So godliness then is this inner response to the things of God which shows itself in devoted reverence for God. Let me say that again. Godliness is our inner response to the things of God which will show itself in devoted reverence for God. These things of God will shape our attitudes. 
They will shape our words, our actions. They will shape our lives. You can't help but know somebody as a Christian because they're living for Christ. Maybe not perfectly. Maybe a little rougher on the edges. But you see in them a living for Christ. Thomas Watson, the old pastor, says, It is a sacred impression and workmanship of God in a man whereby of carnal he is made spiritual. We will show forth Christ in our lives. That is, that is godliness. In our passage for this morning for the week ahead, Paul, through that divine inspiration and guidance of the Spirit of God, includes contentment as being part of godliness. He's talking, he's warning against people who, who think of godliness as gain, that they, can, uh, they, they don't see it uh, as, as service to the Lord, but something they can gain from, something that makes them better in some way or another. And he says this, but godliness with contentment is, is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But what does he mean by godliness? I mean, what does he mean by contentment? We talk about godliness. What does he mean by contentment? Well, contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of his providence simply because it is his providence. That's contentment. Embracing God's will in every aspect of his work in your life simply because you know he is at work in your life. It's trusting that as his child, God will always provide what we need to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Contentment isn't about having the newest, the best, or whatever thing it is. It's living out Romans 8.28. We know that God is at work for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So this is talking about who we are. It's talking about making that decision of trusting that the Lord is at work in his providence. And whatever he provides is exactly what I need. Thinking again to Puritans, another Puritan wrote this book back in the 17th century, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. A little smaller title there, isn't it? But this 17th century Puritan pastor looked around the people in his church and he said, they just don't get it. Christian contentment has been a rare jewel for them. Folks, if that was true for them in the 17th century, think about how much more so it is true for us in the 21st century. How often do we think of contentment as, as grace? How often do we think of contentment meaning that my satisfaction is independent of my circumstances? That the world should never determine my contentment, only God does. How often do we, do we think of that? Or how often we're tempted to think these things uh, that the world provides is what provide my, or will determine my contentment. It should only be determined by God. It's interesting when we, we think about the Bible. We, a few years, a couple years ago, we went through a sermon series in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is, is known as the book of joy. It's a very joyful book. Does anybody remember where the apostle Paul was when he wrote the book of Philippians? He was in jail. He was in prison. He was in chains. But he wrote about joy. And in that book, he talked about his own contentment. Now think about this. He's in jail for preaching the gospel. He hasn't murdered anybody. It wasn't a bank robbery. And it wasn't a mass shooting. 
He just had the audacity to tell people that they're sinners and God loves sinners. And God will save sinners through Jesus Christ. He speaks about his own contentment. And he, he uses a term as commonplace among the ancient Greek, Greek philosophical schools. Their vocabulary, contentment, meant self-sufficiency, independence from challenging circumstances. But, but Paul explains that his contentment was not rooted in his own self-sufficiency. He turned the word around and said, my contentment is based upon Christ's sufficiency. That's Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a very popular verse for, for athletes and to put on shirts and to say, right? But, but in, in the context of this, it's not about being a really good basketball player or, or, or having a really good football team. It's about contentment in Christ. That Paul sitting in prison, in chains, rats running around him, dank dripping walls, says, I am content because of Christ's sufficiency. Christ is everything I need. I may not have freedom. I may be dirty. I may be grungy. I may lose my life. But I have Christ. And that is everything. And that is Christian contentment. That's the direct fruit of having no higher ambition in life than to belong to the Lord. No higher ambition than to be totally at his disposal and the place that he appoints at the time that he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make because he is all that we need. That is great gain and godliness, isn't it? To be so, so dependent upon Christ, that's all we need. There was a young Scottish minister who was named Robert Murray McShane. He once wrote this. It has always been my aim and it is my prayer to have no plans with regard to myself. That may sound odd to us, especially those of you who keep a calendar, as I do. I have to plan. If I don't plan, then nothing's getting done. But thank goodness we've got technology where I, where I put it on my computer, it connects to my phone, which connects to my watch. I'm waiting to get the brain implant, the chip implant, so then it'll make its way to my brain. I have less excuses of not doing these things. We make plans. We have to make plans. So this may sound odd to us. I have no plans regarding myself. What McShane would say or what other people notice. He had one driving ambition, that's to know Christ. Everything he planned was ultimately towards that. So which means every morning, when he woke up and put his feet on the ground, Robert Murray McShane had only one driving ambition. He wanted to know Christ better. He wanted to know him more. He wanted to know him deeper. And that was his contentment. Godliness will lead us where we always make Christ our ambition. And that is the great gain for us because when we do that, we discover that he becomes our sufficiency. And no matter what is happening around us, we may be content. In my study of this passage, I came across this quote. Godliness is not about acquiring better and more material things. It is instead an active life of faith. <coughs> living out of covenant faithfulness in relation to God, a, li a life and a faith that finds sufficiency and contentment in Christ alone, whatever one's outward circumstances might be. It's a mouthful, but I think it's a good summary of what Paul is teaching our passage this morning. And so it should lead us to ask these questions of ourselves. How content are we with our lives? 
as we look around at everything that God has provided for us, materially, spiritually, all these aspects of our life, how content are we with what God has provided for us? Or do we think maybe the grass is always greener on the other side? If only I had that, it would be better. If only I possessed this trait, it would be better. What Paul tells us here is that our growth and godliness will be proportional to our growth and contentment. As the prophet Samuel was saying goodbye to his people, these were some of his final words. Fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. That's a Christian life in one verse, isn't it? Fear, respect of the Lord, serving the Lord, and contentment. Because we consider what great things he has done for us. The greatest being Jesus Christ. Everything else after that, that's just gravy, isn't it? Godliness with contentment is a great game in the covenant God has made with us. May we remember that now as we prepare to come to this table and to this meal that points us to our greatest contentment and goal in godliness, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.